Hello, and welcome to Moving Right Along, a Muppet Movie podcast brought to you by ToughPigs.com. This is the podcast where we watch The Muppets Take Manhattan two minutes at a time and talk about it a lot. I'm your host, Ryan Rowe. I'm your other host, Anthony Strand. And this week we have a first-time guest who we are very excited about. He is uh, an author, a playwright, a performer, a podcast host. Guest, please tell us who you are. I am Noah Diamond. Yes, this is Noah Diamond. Um, We wanted to have Noah on the podcast because in addition to being a Muppet fan, he is also an expert on Manhattan. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I was a New York City tour guide for many years, and uh, one of my books is about the history of New York, and uh, it's one of, yes, it is one of my great subjects indeed. Yes, there we go. Uh, Noah is also one of the leading experts on the Marx Brothers. Uh, A few years ago, he reconstructed the Marx Brothers' uh, lost Broadway musical, I'll Say She Is, and brought it to the New York City stage in a great production. Uh, Anthony and I are both uh, big Marx Brothers fans, and we've mentioned them several times uh, on the podcast. So, uh, yeah, they're just like there's a Muppet fan world, there's a whole... Uh, Marx Brothers fan world out there too. So yeah, and I think the Venn diagram overlaps there. Yeah, I definitely can think of a, a few people I know who are Muppet fans and also big big Marx fans. Yeah, There's well, I, I I think we've mentioned this on the show before, so my apologies if we have listeners. Uh, that was the first thing Ryan and I ever talked about besides the Muppets. That is was true. A night at, was a night at the opera. So yeah, about. And, th- and and that was when it was a new release in 1935. <laughs> <laughs> That's how long we've been we go, We go way back. Uh, yeah, so today we are here to talk about minutes 25 and 26, in which Kermit shouts from the top of the Empire State Building and Rizzo demands more help at work. So we pick up with Kermit on the observation deck of the Empire State Building. Uh, we established last week, uh, I've been up here, Anthony has not been up here, although he's been to several other uh, sightseeing places in New York. Uh, Noah, have you done the whole uh, Empire State Building observation deck? Sure. Yeah, I did it when I was a child. As a tourist, I'd be taken into the city by my grandmother with many such experiences. And those would have been back when the Pan Am building was still the Pan Am building, oh, as, yeah. in, as in Kermit's view. Um, yes, absolutely. And then as an adult, sometimes in my career as a tour guide, I would take people up there. Oh, cool. One of the things about the movie that is charming and that makes it, it's sort of a celebration of New York and New York movie conventions that anyone who lives in New York would go up to the Empire State Building to have a reflective right. night of the soul. Right. Well, that's the thing. The The one time that I have been there was years before I moved to New York and I have not been there in the 14 years that I have lived in New York. So <laughs> yeah, we don't we just, don't really hang out there. No. And also it's it's really not very crowded when Kermit is up here, which seems a little bit unrealistic. Yeah, it's a little bit of uh, an affair to remember. If you're going to have a moody scene up there, you want it to be pretty desolate. Yeah, yeah. Uh so Kermit walks right up to the edge of this observation deck and looks out and we get this slightly shaky shot of Manhattan at night. Um I don't know about how it was in 1984, but today you definitely can't get this close to the edge. There's like there's a fence that is there to you know dissuade people from getting too far or even climbing over it. Um, but I I sometimes wonder when I watch this, are, do you think we're supposed to think for a second that Kermit might be thinking of jumping? Huh. I mean, this is a dark movie, but 
in in spots, but I don't think it's that dark. Okay. I don't like. I don't think this is a movie where the audience is meant to think Kermit is suicidal. Not even for a second. Do you think so? I mean, I don't. I, I mean, don't, I don't know, and probably not because it. It certainly never occurred to me in in thirty five years. Yeah, yeah, it never crossed my mind in dozens of viewings. Okay. But sure, I mean, I could see why. It might cross a darker mind than mine. But what Kermit does do is um, he's just kind of looking out and thinking about the city and all the people out there. He He's just kind of thinking out loud. He comments that his friends are all gone, but he's going to get them back. He's going to sell the show and they're going to be on Broadway. And then he this is when he starts shouting his defiant speech to the city. He says, you hear me, New York? I'm going to be on Broadway because I'm not giving up. I'm here and I'm staying. And as he says this, this, we get these shots of the city, and it's interesting, this this had never occurred to me, but all we see is buildings and vehicles out there. There's just, there's nothing human about it, which kind of gives the impression that the city doesn't really care about Kermit at all. Like, huh, yeah. Yeah, that's how it feels up there, you know? I mean, you don't, you, I mean, you might see some human action down there during the day, but, you know, you are a hell of a long way above yeah. the ground, and you realize how small Manhattan is and how packed with people it is, even if you don't see them as individuals. But there's also something very real about the moment where you just start yelling at New York City itself. Like (laughs) he's almost angry at it. You know, he could be Woody Allen or anybody in a New York movie having the long night of the soul, you know, and how the view of Kermit from when you see the back of his head, you always realize I'm really just looking at abstract shapes at this point, and yet he's communicating as much emotional depth as any great actor. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, well, I think this is one of Jim Henson's most impressive performances, like this yeah. moment specifically. I mean, we saw him do something a little bit like this in the Muppet movie when he's out in the desert by himself, you know, and then Kermit talks to the other Kermit. But this oh, one, yes. this one is just... I don't know. It's it's more subdued, which makes it feel more re- more genuine. Mm. I think you know he's he yeah. just he, Kermit feels more like a real person here than he maybe ever has. I think for me, it somewhat rhymes with the moment in the first Muppet movie when he delivers his speech to Doc Hopper, the one that culminates in you know go ahead and and shoot me, go ahead and kill me. You know, I've made all these friends and. Uh, our dream is about singing and dancing and making people happy. This moment is kind of like the breakdown of that dream. Like this is what happens when, you know, you have to face how difficult it is to make that dream come true. Um, I don't know what, that's not the same moment in the narrative of the story, but those, these two moments always seem to go together for me. Yeah. It is a similar sort of like he's, He's trying really hard to express his defiance against uh, the world that's trying to prevent him from achieving his dreams. I, the references to friends might be what the connection is. That that speech in the first film is so much about, I had this dream and I've made a bunch of friends um, and this is our dream. And uh, and now here, his, you know, there's lots of people down there, but my friends are all right. gone. Um, that's what it is. It's facing the dream with also the added challenge of having to reunite your friends. That's true. Yeah, he. Yeah. it's not... Yeah, whereas in the first one, he's collected all these friends. In this one, he had all these friends, and now he lost them. They're all they all yeah. went away. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, this is this is kind of a, an intense scene for Kermit. It is, well, and one specific moment that I adore, and this is obvious, but when he yells, the frog is staying, 
right? Yeah, that's the next thing he says. You hear me, New York? The frog is staying. But it's like the frog is staying. Right? Like, Kermit's <laughs> voice cracks just like in despair at yeah. that moment, you know, which I'm sure was an intentional choice by Jim and or Frank sure. to, to have that happen. But it makes him seem so much smaller. Like, yeah, he, this is not, you know, welcome again to the Muppet show. This is not like, right. you, you know, it's we're, we're going to start things off with a great opening number. And it goes like this. That Kermit is <laughs> gone. Right. Yeah. Because his, his dream has been shattered. And now he's just like a small, lonely little man screaming into the night. And he doesn't even have his 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 MC's voice anymore. <laughs> right. You no, know? absolutely true. It's often it's overlooked that Kermit does have his dark side. He always has his dark side. And although he is, a, you know, the, the happy center of the Muppet story and a very wholesome uh, figure most of the time, um, occasionally there are glimpses of Kermit having a depressive or even a bit of a cruel streak once in a while. Um, and, and here it does seem like this is, um, on one hand, part of that. But but then uh, he's still so resiliently hopeful. I mean, it's it's still yeah. the frog is staying, and it's a moment that uh, I've often either quoted out loud or at least reflected on in my long experiences as a frog trying to make it in the big city. <laughs> right. Well, yeah. So we should mention when when we um, wrote to you about possibly being on this podcast, this was the scene that you mentioned as the one that you would choose. So is that why you kind of identify with Kermit here? Yeah, I, well, I mean, I always identify with Kermit. He really is. uh, Sure. He, he remains my hero after uh, about, I guess, 40 years of uh, identifying with that frog. So yes, he's always on my mind a little bit. It's always Kermit and Groucho. He's been, um, you know, a, a struggling New York artist, a guy who moved to the city trying to, put on shows. Um, I've had many opportunities to relate to what Kermit's going through here. And even outside the context of, of show business and art and, and entertainment, that, that resilient moment, um, the frog is staying. Yes. I've, I've thought it often. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Um, did you happen to watch the uh, 2015 ABC Muppets sitcom? Yeah, I did. There was some of the criticism of that, which we've talked about uh, on our other podcast is that Kermit was kind of, bitter and sort of uh, a downer a lot on that show. Did you, what did you think of that incarnation of Kermit? Yeah. I, well, I agree with that observation about it. It seems this element um, was introduced in the Jason Siegel movie a few years before that. He was very sad in that movie. Yeah. yeah. I, I enjoyed that movie a lot, um, especially on first viewing. I was really delighted with it. Um, but I do think it it did, um, yes, one of the ways in which Kermit seemed to be updated during that period was by making him a little more bitter, a little more, he has a little touch of like an older showbiz figure who's just been around the block so many times mm. that he's become cynical. And I don't know, I think I have mixed feelings about it, as I do with all post-Henson Kermit. Yeah. I no doubt but that the character should continue and that it's not always going to be the same. But, you know, I am of that, um, that original Muppet generation that for whom the Henson Kermit really is Kermit. Um, sure. And the successive Kermits are Kermit in the same way that I'm Groucho when I play Groucho Marx, you know, close enough, better than nothing. But, uh, <laughs> but there is no denying um, 
And so I think for that reason, um, one of the ways to do Kermit, if you have this challenge of recreating something like that is, you know, have fun with his wholesomeness. And I think that's part of what they're doing. The, that sitcom yeah. in 2015, I thought it was um, only only somewhat successful, but a, a noble effort. And, you know, I've, I've only seen one episode of the new Muppet series that's on Disney Plus. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can't talk about that with much authority. But Oh, yeah. And that's that's a very different kind of different thing. kind of thing. Yeah. But I similarly, I with a lot of these efforts, I feel like, OK, I'm glad they're doing Muppet stuff and that's a way to do it. And yeah, I'm a little removed from it in the sense of like, I don't I don't need it to be um, to, to fully satisfy me the way the original stuff does. Oh, that's an interesting take. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think a lot of it, too, is these characters have so much history. It's hard for new writers to come in and figure out exactly how to write them sometimes. I think one of the reasons I was so pleased with the uh, 2011 Jason Segel Muppet movie when I first saw it was because it it was so brazen in its intention to play right to my nostalgia for the Muppets Mm. of my childhood. I mean, it really was for the Gen X part of the audience in yes, so many definitely. ways. Yeah, and I loved sure. being pandered to that way. I mean, it was delightful. <laughs> Successive viewings, although I've enjoyed it, I have wondered if maybe um, uh, maybe it could have been better by doing a little bit less of what it pleased me so much <laughs> by doing. Yeah, I think I think it, it would probably hold up better to repeated viewings if it had done a little less of that. I think so too. Well, yeah, and I think... I think Muppets Most Wanted does do a little bit less of that. And right. I think that's why, like, I at least enjoy it more now than I do the, the 2011. Right. Muppets Most Wanted f- felt to me a little more like Great Muppet Caper and the um, the trilogy that followed Muppets Take Manhattan, uh, Treasure Island and Christmas Carol and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, um, genre films starring the Muppets. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I could see that. Um, yeah, I guess we'll get to all of those if we stay on track with this podcast <laughs> in a few years. So we'll we'll talk more about that. Um, another thing about this scene, uh, when we interviewed uh, David Mish for Tough Pigs, uh, David Mish, who worked on the screenplay for this movie, he mentioned another joke that he pitched for this scene that was rejected. He said, when Kermit is on the roof shouting to the city, I wanted him to finish his impassioned speech and then hear a voice in the distance say, Shut up, we're trying to sleep. That would have been funny, but completely... Just like uh, the, the other one that we mentioned last week, I think, was he wanted to have uh, like big King Kong gorilla legs coming out of the elevator <laughs> in the lobby. But I think just like that, this would have been funny, but completely tonally inappropriate for this scene. Right? It, that's, that's just not which Muppet movie this is, y- you know? Right. Yeah. Again, it's like I could see it probably... Shut up, we're trying to sleep. I could see in either of the first two, maybe. Yeah. But uh, I think I think you could have done that joke here if he was on the roof of an apartment building or the building of of the building where they're living in the lockers or something. But uh, you, you know, um, is that this film, The Lockers? Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, but yes, the the unreality of having somebody say that to you, shout that to somebody who's yelling on top of the Empire State Building takes it into the a broader kind of um, satirical film than this is. Right. That's, yeah, that's true. Although we do, so the next thing we see 
is um, it, it goes down to street level and we see a familiar figure who's lurking in the shadows. That's Miss Piggy. It sort of seems like she can hear Kermit shouting because she's kind of looking up at the building and we hear his voice echoing out. But maybe that's because Piggy is very tuned in to Kermit. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, well, realistically, you, you wouldn't hear someone who is yelling on top of the building, but I do think that's what the film is wants us to read. Yeah, I think so. Can we also talk about how great that shot of Piggy is? Yeah. She's like like hidden in shadows, like Orson Welles in The Third Man. (laughs) You know? Like, it's such a, like, we don't see her face, really, but it's just like, here's Piggy in this striking hat and coat, like, lurking about. (laughs) What is she up? I don't know. It's such a, like, there's so much in this movie that looks, to me, it's a much more visually interesting movie than either of the last two were you know like it's um, full of of more striking shots like that that yeah I, that's I, probably I, true and it's the same corner where we just saw kermit a minute or two ago right coming yeah. around the corner where we saw his shadow before we saw him which we both commented on how, how cool that looked so yeah this is a good looking muppet movie um the, the i think this is the, the last thing i have about the empire state building sequence but um i mentioned in a previous episode that i grew up with the read-along book and record from this movie. And there are several lines that are different on that that I always expect to hear when I watch this. So on the record, Kermit says, I'm going to make it New York. He doesn't say the frog is staying. So when I watch this, I always am sort of waiting for him to say, I'm going to make it New York, but he never says it. So also somewhere. What sound did it make to tell you it was time to turn the page? um, It's sort of a chime. Uh-huh. And at the beginning, Scooter explains, because Scooter is reading the story, and Scooter explains that this is the sound you'll hear when it's time to turn the page. And then the next time it happens, Piggy says, that's the turn the page bell. And Scooter says, they already know. <laughs> Beautiful. Which is a nice, yeah, little playing with the format. Um, but yeah, somewhere out there is a video of me as a little kid uh, jumping around my family's living room going, the frog is staying. So <laughs> if I can find that, I'll put an audio clip of that at the end of this episode. Please do. That right. sounds like good stuff. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so anything else about the Empire State Building before we move on? I mentioned earlier that I haven't actually been to the top of the Empire State Building. I've been to New York twice and I just didn't do it either time. Um, but I would imagine that yelling, you hear that New York, the frog is staying is kind of like the Muppet fan version of like, I don't know, going into the New York public library dressed as a ghostbuster or something, right? <laughs> like, like Muppet fans must just do it all the time. You know, I <laughs> bet they do. I, I have not witnessed that, but, or, you know, heard about anyone specifically doing that, but I'm sure they do. Yeah. I have, as a tour guide, included The Frog is Staying, along with King Kong, and Fair to Remember, and other Empire State Building movie moments in my in, in talking about it. And it's one of the cultural signals you can use to remind people of the, how large the building looms in, in the zeitgeist. Yeah. And I also think, it, I mean, definitely in, in fiction and movies, often in real life, too, New York itself is really a metaphor, you know. I mean, New York is a metaphor for ambition and and things like that. But you can have a the frog is staying moment in any town, you know. Um, and whenever whenever you have a the frog is staying moment, you should assume that your your ex may be stalking you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, actually, that's the thing about this. Piggy just left town. It has not been. 
I don't know exactly how much time is supposed to have elapsed between all the Muppets leaving town and Kermit having this sad little it, moment, but it sure seems like it's the same day. It, it might be the same day. So she just got on that train out of town and then turned around and got the next train back into the city. Yeah. Well, I mean, cause we see all the Muppets leaving and then all the Muppet heads are around Fozzie and then it fades to Kermit like at night. Yeah. I don't think there's any reason to assume it's that more time has passed. Right? right. So it's like, he just said goodbye to everyone and now he's alone. So he goes to the, the Empire State Building. Yeah. Yeah. But I think Piggy just got off the train as soon as, like, as soon as she was out of Kermit's line of sight. I don't think she went anywhere. Do you think she jumped out of the moving train while it was on its I think way? She, <laughs> I think she did a barrel roll out of the moving train. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. She thought, I'm going to turn right around and spy on Kermit and Jenny. Yeah. Yep. yeah she, doesn't want, she doesn't want Kermit to give Jenny the huggies. No. Yeah. Well, she forgot. Friends do not spy. She did. A, she a did lesson she will it. have to learn soon enough. From a great comedian. Yes. Uh, so the next day, Kermit is, he, he comes into Pete's. He seems very energized now, suddenly. Oh, man, um, I love Kermit just, like, bouncing through the, the room. Like, yeah, he is moving with such, like, force that it's hard for me to imagine how there's room for Jim Henson on the floor. Like, <laughs> Like there's because the, the room seems full, right? So it feels like it's packed, and Kermit's just like bursting through it. Yeah, so, uh, I, I assume then, this is one of those sets that was built up, so he's like Jim Henson is actually under the set holding his arm up. But I'm sure that's right. Yeah, yeah, just like running through this restaurant set, right? Or he could be like on a laying down on you know a, a cart or something too. I don't know. It could be. I'm not. I'm not sure. You know, I'm not sure how they actually did this particular set. Um, also, so in New York, a long night of the soul has to end in a diner. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You're yeah. right. True. Uh, so he's, uh, it, it feels already like the diner is sort of Kermit's base of operations in the movie. Maybe that's just because I've seen it so many times. But this is actually only the second time he's been there. It was the time with all his friends, and now he's back for a second time. Um, right. He's there to ask Pete if there is any work in the diner that he could help with. Uh, as this is happening, there's this silly pun that, that happens, which is worthy of the Muppets. When Rizzo asks Pete what is on the plate he just served up, Pete says, is grits, grits, how many grits? And Rizzo says, how should I know how many? Count them yourself. So I had no idea what how many grits actually were. As Neither a kid. did I. Like, so I just thought Pete was actually just asking him how many. Oh. Rizzo <laughs> Like, I thought the joke was that he wanted Rizzo to count these things. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah, I, that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I'm from North Dakota. It's not a big, not a big grits. No, I wouldn't think so. Yeah. You know? Uh, a lot yeah, of wordplay jokes are are lost on little kids, I think. Yeah. I'm sure this was my first exposure to the phrase, how many grits. But yeah. it is a beautiful pun. It's a pun that's just asking for it. And, yeah. and it's like... Uh, you know, it, it, the Muppets can get away with this kind of wordplay. It's, it's similarly to the way the Marx Brothers can by delivering it with a plum. Yeah, yeah, actually, this is, I could easily imagine Chico Marx doing this punchline. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I guess, have either of you ever had hominy grits? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I have now. My wife is from the South. I, okay. I prepare yeah. a nice plate of grits now, but. But in 1984, all my grits were ahead of me. <laughs> yeah, actually, same thing. My my wife is from Missouri. Also, ah. she grew up eating grits, and so mm. that's when I 
I've had them. Well, despite being from the southern part of the country, I had never eaten grits until relatively recently. I I think I was sort of turned off by the way they look and the fact that they are called grits. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, is, te- is Texas a big grits area, though? Uh, yeah, I think, yeah, you can find grits at a lot of, like, diners. and I mean, they serve it at Denny's, I think. There are a lot of Denny's in the, the cities in Texas. <laughs> Sure. Um, oh, now, yeah, you can. There's you can get grits in a in New York City too, pretty yeah. commonly uh, as a, an option among breakfast sides. But maybe it's one of those things like bagels that's come a long way. When I was a child, mm. my my parents were shocked when bagels went national. Oh, oh, is that right? Yeah, that's funny. Interesting. I can't. I, I I could not tell you the first time I had a bagel or or heard of bagels, but I feel like it's been my whole life. Yeah, my early childhood, I lived in Connecticut, um, which is not known for its bagels. And uh, But yes, I think uh, the introduction of things like Linder's Bagel, supermarket versions. Mm. Are, right, yeah. So maybe Grits maybe grits also has, in our lifetimes, you know, gone from regional to, uh, to all the rage. It had a moment. <laughs> well, so I, I did look up on Wikipedia to, to see what makes them hominy grits. And Wikipedia says hominy grits are a type of grits made from hominy, corn that has been treated with an alkali in a process called nixtamalization with the pericarp removed. So, of course, of course, that's what they are. You took the words right out of my mouth. <laughs> I don't know what any of that means, but... You, you said it just like Elton Brown would say it, right? <laughs> but they're pretty good. So, uh, Pete and Rizzo are arguing over Rizzo's efficiency as a waiter. Uh, Rizzo threatens to quit right in the middle of the breakfast rush. He says he will stay, but only if Pete hires some additional help. And he starts to open the back door to introduce another rat who's going to come in. But before we can actually meet this guy, that is where this clip ends. So we'll have to wait until next week to find out who this other rat is. (laughs) It's Um, a mystery. Yeah. Uh, Any other thoughts on on the diner scene or or the rest of this uh, before we move on? Noah, I'll start with you. Uh, well, I, when we uh, when I first uh, heard what the two minutes was going to be, and we talked about the frog is staying, I had that in my head. Oh, we're going to talk about the Empire State Building uh, scene. And then when I watched your clip when you first sent it to me, I was so pleasantly I didn't even re- realize it meant. Oh, we'll also talk about the diner. Yeah. Um, yes, it's lovely, isn't it? Yeah. As I said before, there is something about feeling just at home at your diner as you do in your apartment when you're one of these uh, trying to put on a show in the big city types. Yeah. Um, and yes, the way he bursts in is beautiful. Uh, and, um, um, and also the character of Pete, you know, um, I guess you guys talked about him in when he first appeared, yeah. um, but he's so beautifully done. And uh, uh, Louis Zorick is just so perfect. He's very much the kind of guy, not only the kind of guy who would be running a diner like that, but the kind of guy you'd want to talk to when you're, having a long night of the soul. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, he's great. Um, so did yeah, you have sure. a, or, or do you have a, a neighborhood diner that you've gone to when you're working on, on the shows that you've done? Sure. Yeah. There's always a diner. There's always a diner. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, like many New Yorkers, um, I have uh, had so many apartments, although it's been mm-hmm. pretty, pretty stable the last decade. <laughs> um, I've been so all over the city. Also very often the diner you frequent uh, during a period of your life has to do with where the, where the show is, where the rehearsals oh, are, sure. some, something else like that. But 
Yeah, um, often uh, often you have a number of these places, but I think especially in big cities where you tend to live in small apartments, having that other place where you can yeah read a book or plan your future is it's yeah it's part and of the get lifestyle. some some relatively inexpensive food at a place with probably a really large menu. That's right. Yeah, twenty four hours. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's good stuff. Um, I actually do had I had one other one other thing from this uh, scene, which is that in the March seventh, nineteen eighty three draft of the screenplay, when Pete gets mad about Rizzo quitting, he refers to him as a devil rat, which is pretty <laughs> harsh. He's from New Jersey, though. Um, I don't know. Like the like the, like the Jersey Devil. Uh, I is he? I don't know. Rizzo, Rizzo's canonically from New Jersey. Oh, okay. He says it. In Muppet Christmas Carol, when the cat's chasing after him, oh, <laughs> he's from New Jersey. Totally forgot and, about and, that. So it fits. And, and, and unlike everyone else in that movie, Rizzo's playing himself. So, <laughs> right. You know? I guess that's um, true. That it's sort of interesting that what happens here is essentially a labor re- revolt by rats, because rats are symbols of um, of union antagonism. You know, unions. Ooh. Those giant inflatable rats outside companies that aren't using union labor. Yeah, um, yeah. Huh. The rat is a symbol of uh, of uh, corporations uh, exploiting workers. Um, I wonder if that could possibly have been on anybody's mind. Obviously, the rat characters or Rizzo himself precedes this uh, storyline. Yeah, but that's funny. He's he's mad about his working conditions, so he wants to bring in more rats. <laughs> yes, right, right. A rat workforce. Yeah, that's funny. Um, all right, Anthony, anything else about uh, the diner or these minutes? Yes. Um, so one thing that jumped out at me is Kermit specifically asked Pete if he can work part-time so I can keep working on the show. Oh, he does, yes. Which uh, we talked in a previous episode about how I, our, our previous guest, Stephanie DeBruzzo, mentioned that like we don't see Kermit doing the work, as she said, right? Yes. But like presumably, if he's only working part-time, he is tweaking the show. He is trying to find what's missing in the hours when he's at home and not working at Pete. And I we just, guess we, we, just, so. we just aren't watching him sitting alone in his apartment, like, you know, trying out different script changes or whatever. You That's know what true. I mean? Yeah. If he's working part time though, he would have time to keep, to keep working on the script. Yeah. Um, and that, it occurs to me too, especially cause we just talked about the diner as his sort of second home. Is Kermit still living in the bus locker, or do we think he has gotten an apartment now? Or yeah, he has an apartment. Grover comes over and tries to sell him tea. <laughs> he found a nice place on Sesame Street. <laughs> yes, I lo- actually love that idea that that's where he's living during this movie. And Perfect. That's, that's when those Grover sketches are happening as well. Kermit yeah. is trying to work on his Broadway <laughs> musical, <laughs> which just makes him even more aggravated. Yeah, and so it totally makes sense. Yeah, completely understandable. Wow, there's a there's a fan edit in there somewhere. <laughs> Yeah, so so get on it, listeners. Yeah, somebody out there make that and send it to us. Make it happen. <laughs> All right. Uh, so, Noah, we like to ask our guests, uh, what is your history with this movie? Do you remember the first time you saw it? How would you rank it along the other Muppet movies? Uh, yes, I, 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 I know that I saw it on its initial release. I was seven years old in 1984. Um, and so I, And I know that I saw it in the theater. I know it was a huge event for me. The Muppets in general, I was completely um, in love with the Muppets from earlier than that. In fact, the original Muppet movie was the first movie I ever saw. Uh, I saw it at a drive-in theater um, in Mansfield, Connecticut. 
it came out in 1979 and that's probably the year I saw it. Um, maybe it was 1980, but that would have made me two or three. Mm-hmm. And I had been given by a family friend, some puppets, Muppet puppets. I had a Kermit and a uh. pig and I later acquired a couple more. And um, I knew them from television, but mostly Sesame street at that point. And then right. the Muppet show entered my life in those years. And I, as a child, you know, especially in that pre-home video era of my early childhood, um, just the presence of moving characters on a screen was sort of (laughs) mysterious and overwhelming. And so seeing the Muppet movie at a drive-in and recognizing the characters on the screen as the puppets that I owned and had with me. Oh, yeah. You know, it just like drew a big circle around the idea (laughs) that the the stuff up there, the stuff that you look to as entertainment and that seems genuinely magical is also like you have that stuff, you know, Mm -hmm. and theoretically you could also be doing that. I really think it was formative for me. And The Great Muppet Caper, I think for one reason or another, I didn't catch up with until later like Mm -hmm. on on video. Um, So this was probably the second Muppet movie I saw and yeah, I loved it. I mean, of course, it was instantly um, my favorite thing in the world. And, uh, but I did not realize um, at seven how much of my future was indicated by this movie. I mean, this was the origin of the whole idea that I might be a writer or a performer or sure. you know, live in New York and put on shows. Um, and there's so many things, not only moments that I relate to in, in the story of the movie, but even things, little New York moments that, that I think of now, um, or the presence of Lonnie Price uh, in the movie, who you know later became this musical theater person to me, who I know in so many other contexts. Yeah, He was the original Charlie and Merrily We Roll Along, and just a couple of years ago produced an, a beautiful documentary about that experience. Uh, called The Best Worst Thing That Ever Could Have Happened. Yeah, that documentary is really good. Yeah, he's really somebody. But so it was my introduction to him. And um, anyway, uh, I think among all the Muppet movies, to answer your question, it ranks second. Um, And it's kind of almost breaks my own heart not to rank it first, because it is the one closest to my heart in in terms of its location and the specific thing of wanting to be on Broadway. And I can't tell you how many times I've found myself saying, we've got a show that we think you're going to love. And it has a great opening number that goes like that. <laughs> I mean, that is my life. But, uh, but the original Muppet movie is imprinted itself on me some years earlier sure. and is even, even more, I think is even a slightly greater film, objectively speaking. And mm. uh, is etched on my heart even a little more deeply, but this one is is right on its heels. That is a very good answer. I think a lot of it for a lot of people depends on when they saw the movies, especially with these first three that that Jim Henson worked on. Yeah, I guess that's true. I, my feelings about the Great Muppet Caper would would confirm that. I I as I say, it was I'm not sure why it was kind of missing from my earliest childhood i guess i didn't see it when it came out Mm. Um, although i did have some of the burger king glasses (laughs) oh well don't drink out of those (laughs) decorated with scenes oh really are they they've led there's they yeah they had too much lead in the paint (laughs) oh my goodness if you still have them don't drink out of them i don't um 
if I did, I probably would have sold them years ago to produce a show. Sure. Uh, but, uh, but, um, but I do remember those glasses, but, but when I see the great Muppet caper now, uh, or, you know, I haven't seen it in some years, but I, I did watch it some years ago, fairly recently, and was so dazzled and surprised by it because I don't have it lodged in my memory quite the way the other two original films are. Right. So in a way, it's it's exciting. It's almost like having a Marx Brothers movie I've only seen a few times. And yeah, you got to discover it. Yeah. Yeah, sure. that's, wow, that's, that's really great. good. Uh, all right, well... Um, if there is nothing else, we can wrap up for this week. Uh, everyone, make sure you check out toughpegs.com on the internet, Facebook, Twitter, and all those things. Our logo is by Morgan Davy. Our theme music is by Stacy Rosen. Thank you to both of them. Uh, you can also uh, send us an email at movingrightalong at toughpegs.com. Let us know what your thoughts are on this movie. You can find me on Twitter at me, Ryan Rowe. And, and, and can I can I just say that like I feel terrible with Noah being our guest for years. My Twitter was at Zeppo Marxist. Oh yeah. And I, and I quit Twitter in March. Like when the pandemic hit, I was just like, I'm done. I'm, I'm, I'm out of here. So I deactivated my account, but, but like, yeah, that was 10 years, <laughs> 10 years. I had that Twitter, you know, how uh, long, how long does it take after you deactivate a Twitter handle for it to become available for somebody else? 30 days. Oh, so anyone could snatch up at Zeppo Marxist yeah, if, now. If someone wants at Zeppo Marxist, it, it's all theirs. I'm getting a lot more reading done than I used to. I'm sure, but well, I'm but, especially pleased and impressed that your Twitter handle is named after Zeppo Marx. Well, I, it's one of those things where I thought it would be the funniest one to like the idea that I would name it after Zeppo was funnier than naming it after any of the others. I felt Zeppo like. is so, it, absolutely funnier yeah. and fascinating. What what could be more interesting? <laughs> than an uninteresting Marx brother. Actually, that, that's exactly the thing. Yeah, anyone could come up with Groucho Marxist as their Twitter handle. I'm but. sure someone has it, you know? Yeah, well, now I, I want to know if there's at Gummo Marxist, too, because that's the only thing less obvious than Zeppo. That's yeah, right. And, and, and as we've talked about, Gummo, of course, was one of the writers on Muppets Go to the Movies. Yes. Which I don't, I don't know if you've seen that one, Noah, but it's a TV special from the 80s. There's oh, a running oh where they do scenes from Casablanca and Wizard yeah. of Oz. Yeah, yeah. I remember it. Yeah, there's a number of references to just, they don't say Marx, but just like Gummo is one of the writers. And when they do the Three Musketeers, it's Athos, Porthos, and Gummo. You know? Oh, is that right? You know, I, mean, yeah. I probably haven't seen it since it was new. Sure. Oh, that's great. I, I've got to find it again and uh, and and make that known in the Marx Brothers community. Yeah, yeah. Sure. It, yeah and then, we, yeah, and then we, we can send you a copy. I mean, I, I know Ryan and I both have digital files of it. Yeah. Somewhere, so. uh, and then in the end credits of that, it does actually say in the writer credits, Gummo is one of the names listed. So nice. Oh, there's a lot of Marxian Easter eggs in, in the Muppet canon. Yeah, for sure. Well, we. Time. Anthony was reminding me earlier, uh, we had an episode when we were talking about the Great Muppet Caper, we had an episode called Groucho Glasses, because there's the scene where they're trying to sneak into the Mallory Gallery, and they're all wearing Groucho Glasses. Yeah, that was my Facebook cover photo for a while. <laughs> that's, that's a good one. I love that. So speaking of you being on the internet, uh, Noah, where can people find you and your work on the internet? NoahDiamond.com is my website. You can find a uh, portals to all kinds of things there. Lots of Marx Brothers stuff and also lots of non-Marx Brothers stuff. You can buy my books. 
uh, by multiple copies in case you want to read them multiple times. Um, and you can also find me on Twitter and Facebook and all of those things. And you should definitely do that. Uh, Noah has a lot of great stuff out there. I'm also the co-host of the Marx Brothers Council podcast, which is a monthly Marx Brothers discussion. And uh, you can find me there too. In fact, our next episode that we're recording, actually, I won't say that because you release these after the fact. Yeah, it'll be a while before this one's out. But yeah, if, if anyone, if you have any appreciation for the Marx Brothers, you should definitely be listening to the Marx Brothers Council podcast because it is very good. And listeners, if you don't mind, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever and tell all your friends about the show. And join us again next week for another episode of Moving Right Along. Bye. Count them yourself. The frog is staying. <laughs> I don't know how many. Count them yourself.